Hey, what's up? This is Nikki D with Medium Plus. Got a fun little episode today here for you. This is a Skype group. We're all discussing spirits. So this is a group that I help to organize. We meet once a week virtually, and the members include folks from, well, I'm here in Seattle, but then also Nevada and Reno, Denver, Napa, California, even down in Houston and East Coast. So it's a nice kind of spread out group of folks who are in the wine profession and studying for exams. So in this iteration, we are covering spirits. So talking about all kinds of aged and unaged distilled spirits from around the world. And it's a fun little discussion. Each person gives a presentation. And I find this is a really valuable way of studying. Now, one way is, let's say, reading or watching a film or listening to an audio. You know, that's internal information that we are ingesting and then that can circulate and we can review that information but it really gels and becomes solid once we can either write or speak or somehow express that information it kind of closes the circuit so you think of an electrical circuit there's a wire going out and a wire going in and so you need both directions to make the light bulb go off the same thing with information here so the presentations help with that to if you can speak about it and talk about it it becomes really deep type of knowledge so here we are this episode edited by chris barr and We will be having more episodes coming out soon, so stay tuned. But for now, here is our chat on spirits. Kyle, I would love for you to begin our discussion today. Sure. So I have spirits of France, not including cognac and Armagnac. So I basically covered Calvados, Eau de Vie, Marc, and Bean, and a couple others. We're just going to go over base ingredients, primary distillation methods, aging requirements for those, kind of what separates them from everything else, and pertinent details. So to start, I'd say that Calvados is 100% distilled from apples. A minimum of 70% of those have to be bitter apples, which is kind of surprising because basically what I was really looking into through a couple books was that apple brandy like Laird's, for example, is primarily made from apples that you would actually eat. So those are really stark contrasts if you try those side by side. They also have to be 20% local varieties and 15% acidic at the most. They can also be pear 30%, which would be Calvados Tea. And the way that they're basically produced is the apples are crushed, and then they undergo a period of skin contact, and then they're pressed. And then they're usually actually distilled after they've fermented for a little bit, and that becomes what's called the TO, little water, and then they let it sit even longer usually, and then they send it back through the distillation process again, and that's where they make the final Calvados. So I noticed Guild Summit mentions being double distilled for Calvados Pay de Oge, and that's really what they're talking about. And it really kind of accentuates that style, is giving it that extra time and then doing a second distillation afterwards, which really makes it unique. It's not like they're just running it through twice. Another thing, pasteurization, acidification, chapelization, and kind of goes without saying, but carbonation are all legal. And that covers Calvados, Calvados Pay d'Oge, Calvados Dunfonte, Fiend, Marc de Bourgogne, pretty much all of these spirits. As far as Calvados distillation, there's 28 days from that first extraction until the final distillation. And then for Dunfonte, it's 42 days, so the time is almost doubled. It all has to be done in a copper continuous still or a copper pot still, in which case it's double distilled. 
and you could only bring it up to a maximum of 72% alcohol. One thing that I did find was surprising was that sugar, caramel, and oak chips are actually allowed to be permitted in those spirits for flavoring purposes. And the minimum aging requirement for all Calvados is two years. For Dom Fronte, it's a minimum of three years in oak cask, 20 hectoliters, so rather small. And then we'll also go over Fien, which would be, so there's, in Calvados, there's a couple different aging requirements. So if you label it as Fien, the three stars, the three apples are VS, it's two years. If it's VO reserve, it's three years. If it's VO, VSOP, or value reserve, it's four. And then Hordage, XO, Trevi Reserve, Trevue, Extra Deploy, and that's all six. And then there's a term that I came across called Production Femia, which is basically all farm-produced and bottled fruit. One thing that I did find really interesting is there are two different pruning methods, which I don't have in my notes, but they're called Hotige and Onbatige. And Otige means that they have to train extra high off the ground, kind of like a traditional tree. And Batige means that they're basically creating them lower to the ground. So it's almost farm-friendly trees. And the reason that that happens is actually not because of the training methods, it's actually entirely rootstock. So the rootstock is actually determining the height of the tree in these vineyards. And I believe it's a minimum of 10% that have to be Hotige. And Matige, there's no one. Then Calvados is a DOC. An AOC was developed in 1942. It's going on Teach. a lot longer than that. Teach. Is that how you pronounce it? And then the Dom Fronte was actually established in 1997. So if you're looking at a map of France and Normandy, you have Calvados. And then you have Calvados Pied Auge, which is kind of like in the heart of that. And then you have Dom Fronte, which is further to the east and covers 30% of pairs. Those do have to be Williams pairs for production. It does have to be made at copper still. The orchards have, themselves have to be 25% pair. So you can't just go out, pick pairs from another orchard, and then call it Fontaine. It has to be almost like a field blend. And then no yeast additions are permitted. And then all thing de Bourgogne requires an age statement. Same with Mark de Bourgogne. They have to have a minimum of five phenolic varieties of whatever they're using. So depending on the region, they're basically using the grapes that are inherent to that region. One thing that I did think was interesting was how Marc de Bourgogne permits the Rhone. So if you're using Marc de Bourgogne, you can use grapes from Cotor, Rhone, Loire, and permitted grapes would be things like Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Sauvignon Blanc, Orgonalicote, Gamay, Pinot Noir, all of those. They all require a minimum alcohol of 40%, and both kinds of pots can be used. So you can use a copper pot or a copper column still. Minimum strength is the same as Calvados, which is 72% ABV, and then it has to be aged a minimum of two years in oak casks, but Remarkable going, it's actually larger than Calvados. These are 60 hectoliter barrels. The aging requirements are a little bit different, even though the terms are roughly the same. BS is two years, VIA is three, VSOP, VO are four, Ordage is six, 
and XO is 10. Actually, trivia is 6, and Portage is 10. I'm thinking of Kingdom Britannia. Chapelization not permitted. Going into Kingdom Britannia, the main difference that I want to cover between Fiend and Mark is that Mark is created from the grapes themselves after they've been pressed. And Fiend is created from the sped leaves. So one thing I will go over next is Fiend. Uh, Fiend of Britannia, which would be primarily apples. So they have to be 15% maximum acidic, and then 70% of those have to be strictly aromatic, and 20% of those have to be other apples or indigenous varieties. One thing that I came across in the Fiend of Britannia and a couple of other fiends was the process called remiage, where you're basically adding water back in and doing a secondary extraction after your first press. This is pretty unique in that Usually they have requirements for grams per liter before you're permitted to do that. So, for example, Fiend de Bretagne is 110 grams per liter, whereas Fiend du Men is 130. They also have maximum extractions per ton of fruit. So, like Fiend de Bretagne, 800 liters, and Fiend du Man, I didn't write it down, but I believe it was 900. And then the age statements are way different. So, BS. Fiend of Britannia is two, VO would be three, VSOP would be four, Fiend of six, and XO is ten. And then Fiend of Britannia and Calvados can both be vintage dated, they just have to be beyond ten years in age. Fiend of Britannia also has to have grass cover in their orchards, and they have to prevent mistletoe, which I actually found out because I was researching. <laughs> Jody knows about this because she looked it up. But Mistletoe prevention is mandatory because it's actually a parasitic plant that kind of draws carbohydrates and minimizes yield on individual branches. So really important that they actually treat for that. And my 10 minutes is up. I have more, but I will just upload that. That was great. Thank you, Kyle. Quick challenge for you here. Take a minute and... For someone who is a guest in your restaurant, just sat at the bar and said, I want to try some funky French eau de vie. You're going to put a flight together for them, and you're just going to do a 15-second spiel on each category. And how are they similar and different? Yeah. So if I put together a flight, I would do a Fiend Calvados against, say, like Eric Bordelais' 1982 vintage dated Calvados. Price was no limit. You're getting something that's got really fresh apple aromatics versus something that's spent a lot of time in barrel and has super vanilla, almost caramelized characteristics to it. And then I would also say for eau de vie, you want to try, say, a Alsatian eau de vie, something that has no time requirement in barrel, so super unique, against, say, a Marc de Bourgogne, where it's getting a little bit less of those floral characteristics, mandatory time in oak, and different grapes overall. Beautiful. Beautiful. I think the other two spirits that I've tried that have been really cool have been like a Marc de Jura and also Kirsch de Fougerolles, which Kirsch de Fougerolles is made from cherries, and it's up kind of in the Vosges area near Alsace. And then Marc de Jura, similar to Marc de Bourgogne, but just from that eastern region. So... Yeah, great job, man. Nick, that Kirsch is its own little AOP, correct? That's true. What does it taste like? 
I mean, obviously cherries, but is it exceptionally different from other things? It's going to be in that same style as Kirschwasser that we see in Alsace and I think Germany. Do they do Kirsch in Germany? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's black cherries. In Fougerol. Yeah. Yeah. I've only tried it once and it was at Texom with Andre Ivanov did a spirits tasting challenge, which was fun. And he had it there. I was like, oh, this is great. But it's kind of one producer who does it. And the big difference, I think you covered this, but just to reiterate, the big difference between Mark and Fien is that Fien is just from basically grape juice, wine that has been distilled, and Mark is the pumice and the, the leftover pressings that are distilled, so similar to grappa. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Thank you very much, Kyle. Welcome, Elise. Good to have you. And yeah. Okay. So I am doing a presentation today on a spirit that I've never tried called Raisia. So Raisia is one of the spirits of Mexico, of which we might typically think of as two. We might think of tequila and then mezcal. But there are a few others, Ricea, Sotol, and Bacanora. And then there's another beverage called Pulque. And so it turns out that Mexico has a wide spectrum of, of different indigenous brewed and distilled beverages. And Ricea, so if you think of Mezcal as sort of an artisanal component in contrast to tequila, which is more modern and refined. Ricea is even more rough and I guess artisanal might be one way to put it, but just sort of informal and a kind of a farmer's version of spirit. It is very rustic and ironically comes from the region of Jalisco, which is the same as tequila. So a quick overview of some things here. Tequila is a spirit made from Blue Weber agave from the Jalisco region, but also four other regions in Mexico. It's typically distilled in more of a modern way. The agave piña are steamed in an autoclave, which is like a giant oven, and there might be oak aging involved with tequila. And big brands, very kind of pure in taste typically, a lot of guests think that tequila might be rough, but they haven't tried necessarily mezcal or, or ricea. But tequila, I find if it's good, it has that really pure agave note and some complexity, but overall it is a polished spirit. Compared with mezcal, these are from regions outside of Jalisco, pretty much centered in Oaxaca with other varieties of agave, separate from Blue Weber. Espadín is common, as well as Tobola, but there are many others that are allowed. And so mezcal is more of an artisanal method. Often it is the pinas are roasted in a pit, maybe under fire, which gives a smoky quality to the final product. And aging is in oak is not as common. So most examples of quality mezcal are going to be either glass-aged, so maybe just the spirit has rested for some time in glass or it's unaged, but new oak aging is not common, like we would see with Reposado or Añejo tequila. 
So then we get to Ricea, and that's going to be the majority of my conversation today. And so Ricea comes from Jalisco. So it's that same area as we see with tequila production. But there are two separate species of agave that are used. So it's the mule's foot pata de mula, or agaves ricieros. So it's two agave species, agave inequiden and agave maximiliana. So there are a number of towns that produce ricea, but they're generally split into two kind of subregions. There's the coastal region and more of a mountain region. And it is basically, just to summarize this spirit, it's like mezcal, but even more rough because it often sees a single distillation, which kind of is concerning to me a little bit because oftentimes spirits are distilled twice just to help remove any of the congeners or impurities that might potentially be unhealthy to consume. And uh, just on distillation, it'll be roughly done in three stages where the first part of the, the distillation is called the heads and then there's the heart and then the tails. So the heads will often contain things like methanol and other kinds of alcohol that you wouldn't want to drink. And then the tails contains just kind of other impurities and tends to be more dilute. So the hearts is what they're going for. And if this is done in a pretty low technology situation, Hopefully they're discarding heads and tails, but it might be hard to measure. And reports that I found online of taste is generally pretty rough and intense, but there are some quality examples that are being produced. Uh, alcohol content is usually between 72 and 80 proof. And so something that's 72 proof, that would kind of make sense for a single distillation because it's not having that second distillation to concentrate it. Apparently, there are some aging designations, Blanco, Joven, Reposado, and Añejo, and these all have some different rules. So Blanco hasn't been kept in oak barrels, Joven is less than a year, Reposado is between one and two years, and Añejo is more than two years. I think these rules exist just for maybe formality's sake, but I don't think that many producers are buying oak barrels or doing that. Current production numbers that I have here is 100,000 liters. And so that's pretty small, actually, compared to the millions of liters produced for tequila. Right now, Ricea is kind of transitioning from this unofficial, loosely produced product to something that has more of an official promotional council and uh, denomination of origin. And there have just been some producers coming into the market in the United States, and that was being led by Eric Torren of Fidencio. Fidencio is a wonderful mezcal that has made great strides and kind of appearance in our market with a lot of different mezcal varieties of uh, different types of agave, and they're delicious. So the brand of Ricea being promoted from Eric Torren is called La Venerosa. And it's made from the Maximilana variety. So I'm just going to give you some label images there in our chat. 
And then this, let's see. I've never seen or tried ricea in in the wild, but I would like to. I think that would be pretty great. Apparently it is delicious. So that's Venerosa, and then here is Estancia. So if anyone's tried it, let me know. But a final little story of ricea that goes back in history is kind of during Spanish invasion and rule, the tax collectors would tax things like mezcal and tequila, those types of spirits, anything made from the piña. And so the folks making ricea were like, ah, we don't want to pay taxes. So they would tell the tax collectors, oh, this stuff, no, this is just made from the roots of the agave. <laughs> it's not made from the piña. And the tax collectors were like, oh, okay, whatever. But it turns out that it was the same thing. You know, the piña is the root. It is that part that is connected to the underground structure. So they're able to avoid taxes and be pretty smart about it. And so therefore that name ricea means little root. And I've got kind of more notes and details, but I think that's going to be a nice overview for right now on ricea. And in a future discussion, it'd be fun to discuss sotol and Bacanora as well. But I'll leave it at that for right now. I have a question. And this is kind of unrelated to Ricea specifically, but what have all of you noticed in terms of glass aging affecting a spirit? What does that do in terms of, are you losing your aromatics from angel share or are they condensing and concentrating over time? Mm-mm. I don't know. I don't think anything's happening, but it's a nice thing, maybe a marketing thing. But glass aging, really, like, spirits don't change if they're just kept in a totally sealed container. I don't see any method of action other than if the glass is kept out in the sun and there is some light-struck action happening, which we wouldn't necessarily want. I can't imagine any sort of change happening from it, although I've heard of it numerous times. Okay. Yeah. I think it's one of those poetic things of, oh, we're letting the spirit rest and sort of find itself and mature, but I don't know how that would happen. Because with oak aging, it's the lactones of the oak are kind of infusing into the spirit and the oxidation reduction methods are occurring chemically and there's sort of a breathing in and out of the wood. So there are measurable things that can be described. So I'm of the thought that if, if it's happening, we can be able to measure and describe it. Cool. I was just wondering, because I've seen spirits like Rockle, for example, where they're like, oh, we let it rest for 10 years and open glass demijohns. And yeah, I don't know like, about that. Yeah. But then again, like Madeira is aged in demijohn. But I think that has a bit to do with heat, where with... Madeira being exposed to a warm environment in Demijohn over a long amount of time, I think there's a certain amount of chemical change that's happening. But then again, that's a wine and not a full-on spirit. Right. I don't know. Probably there's something happening. I mean, who knows? Anyways, Elise, are you feeling good to do yours? I'm good to go. Great. One thing about Ricea is if you ever make it to Boulder, there's a restaurant here that has a ton of it. There's some really great options. I've had the La Villanosa or whatever it is. 
it's really crazy. They have made several different styles, and I have had one that literally tastes like kind of like blueberry kind of essence and like lemon and things like that. It's it's a really crazy thing to try, especially next to things like mezcal and tequila. If you ever make it to Boulder and not go to Frosca, you should go to Arcana because they specialize in mezcal and ricea. They have some of the most extensive selections I've ever seen. It's insane. That's awesome. Okay. I am going there. Uh, let's see. Arcana. Cool. Let's do it. Let's do a field trip. Let's go. You guys free next Wednesday? Let's go. <laughs> okay, Elise, you're up. Okay. Yeah, let's go to Boulder. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Uh, so let's see. Today for my presentation, I researched rums and just kind of learned about rum, where rum is made, what are some definitions for it. And actually the first interesting thing is that there is no real legal definition that's agreed on by everybody in the world that makes rum. And so every country kind of ends up having their own rules. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But for our purposes, rum is fermented and distilled molasses or sugarcane. And the way that you make molasses is by boiling the sugarcane juice to separate the sugar and the molasses. And then many people distill the molasses. Some rums, like rum agricole, are made from fresh sugarcane juice. And those rums are made often in Haiti, Guadalupe, and Martinique. So those rums are generally called rum with an R-U-H-M to distinguish it from the rums that are made from molasses. And then you'll also see on the label the name or the term ron, which is what rum means in Spanish-speaking countries. So you'll see that often on labels. So how rum is made, either you obtain your molasses by boiling the fresh sugarcane juice or you're going to distill your fresh sugarcane juice. So before this, they add the yeasts to the molasses to make what's called a wash. And then that's what goes into the pot still and gets distilled. And you can distill rum using two different types of stills. It can either be the continuous coffee or column still, or it can be a wood or copper pot still. And some of those are still in use in different countries that are making rum. So... As I mentioned, every rum-producing country has its own rules, so I'll kind of touch on a couple of these. As far as aging goes, generally it's done in ex-bourbon casks uh, to give rum that color and the flavor, but it can also be, rum can also be aged in stainless steel. In Mexico, there's a minimum age requirement of eight months, but in countries like the Dominican Republic, Panama, and Venezuela, they have a two-year minimum aging. So, again, every country is just kind of making up their own rules and saying, oh, this is what we should do. Then as far as alcohol by volume, Colombia has a minimum 50% ABV, but Chile and Venezuela have a minimum of 40%. And so you'll also see a lot of different names that different countries come up with or use to name the rums. In Argentina, you can have white rum, gold rum, light rum, or extra light rum. And in Grenada and Barbados, you can have white rum, overproof rum, or matured rum. And in the United States, we call ours a rum, rum liqueur, or flavored rum. So just some different naming nomenclature that you'll see on labels. 
let's talk about navy rum for a minute because you might see that. Or sometimes people will make rums and say bottled at navy strength. And that is 47.75 to 57 ABV alcohol by volume. So we're seeing it's higher than most vodka that you're seeing around 40% or many rums that are 40 or 50%. So 47.75 to 57 ABV for Navy rum. And this was originally for West Indies rums. Although I think now you can make any rum in a higher strength, call it Navy strength. Let's see, there's also Demerara rum, which is something that is definitely unique and only made in one place in Guyana. And this is the place where Demerara sugar comes from. And that sugar was first made in Guyana. And then they're taking that Demerara sugar, making, boiling the sugarcane juice, separating it to pull the sugar out, getting the molasses, and then distilling that to make Demerara rum. So Demerara rums can only be from Guyana. Then we'll talk again a little bit about rum agricole, and that's rum spelled with R-H-U-M, and that separates that this rum is made with fresh sugarcane juice and not molasses, which would be regular rum, R-U-M, or R-O-N. Rum agricole, so distilled from fresh sugarcane juice, you definitely get some different flavors in there. You might get like grassy flavors or some different notes from that sugarcane. Rum agricole is mostly done in the French Caribbean islands. So like Haiti, Martinique, Guadalupe, on their little islands of Marie Galante, Grand Terre, and Bas-Terre. Also, rum agricole is made in Trinidad, Panama, the Dominican Republic, Grenada, Mauritius, and Reunion Island. Then finally, another style of rum called Cachaca which is also a fresh cane juice rum, so very similar to rum agricole in the way that it's made, but it's from Brazil. And so Brazil calls their, what is essentially rum agricole, they call it cachaça over in Brazil. And I wanted to talk a little bit about rum cocktails as well, because these are all good things to know about. So of course the daiquiri, very probably the most popular rum cocktail. You'll also find rum in Mai Tais, Pina Coladas, Cuba Libre, Hurricane, or you can make a hot drink, a hot buttered rum. Then I also want to talk about some producers by region. And as I was researching this, I was going through, you know, just learning about rum. And there is a lot of rum made in many different countries all over the world. So just kind of going through, and I pulled out some producers that were familiar to me and just kind of went through where they are from. So it's kind of a big list, but helps you to understand the big wide world of rum and how many different producers are making different styles in different countries. So in Barbados, we have Mount Gay, probably one of the most famous Barbados rum producers, also Foursquare, and Malibu comes from Barbados. Then from Cuba, you have Havana Club, which is a big volume brand, definitely. From Jamaica, we have Myers, and J. Ray makes Appleton rum, coming from Jamaica. Then from Martinique, Nissan rum and rum Clement, and that's R-H-U-M. So I think we're looking at a lot of rum agricole here. In Puerto Rico, we kind of see some bigger brands like Bacardi, 
and Don Q. And so these are definitely huge producers that are owned by big conglomerates that are set up here in Puerto Rico making rum. Also, Rondo Veronito, a smaller producer, is also located in Puerto Rico, kind of competing with those big guys, Bacardi and Don Q. Then on the islands of Trinidad and Tobago, we have Angostura rum, rums from that region, and also Tencane. Then in Guiana, that's where we find the Demerara rum. You see El Dorado, and uh, definitely known for their Demerara rums and their pot stills, and also Pirate, spelled P-Y-R-A-T, coming from Guiana. Then in Guatemala, Ron Zacapa. Nicaragua has Flor de Caña. And Panama has Panama Pacific and Pacifico rum, Venezuela Diplomatico. And on the U.S. Virgin Islands, they're also making a lot of kind of big name rums here too, like Captain Morgan, Cruzan, and Sailor Jerry. So just kind of an overview, I'll upload these notes so that you can see these producers and where they come from. But a big takeaway for me was that rum is made in many different countries all over the world, and that every country kind of makes up its own rules about aging, minimum alcohol, and what they're going to call it. It's important to remember that rum agricole is made from fresh sugarcane juice instead of molasses. Those are kind of the big takeaway points that I got from rum. I love yeah. rum. <laughs> it is delicious. You're welcome. Especially the sipping rums that we're starting to see more and more. Really nice. I had some, I was able to taste through the lineup from El Dorado, the uh, Demerara rums from Guiana. And you kind of go from the three-year white rum, which is great for cocktails, through five, but then into 12-year, 15, 21-year really outstanding the complexity that you get when these rums are spending time in barrel. It's pretty interesting and delicious. I, I think El Dorado is one of my favorites. From what I understand of how their the numbering works is that there's kind of three traditions. There's the English tradition, the French tradition, and the Spanish tradition. So if it's French, I think if it's like a five year, that I think is exactly five years is what's in there. So that would be like Martinique or Guadeloupe. If it's an English tradition, let's say like with Poussers, that would be the youngest is five years. And if it's a Spanish tradition, the oldest would be five years. So like Ronza Capa 23, it contains a small amount of 23 year. But if there, there were like a, an English 23, the youngest in there would be 23 years. Kind of like with Macallan 18, how it's all at least 18 years old. So kind of an interesting contrast in styles there. Interesting. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Elise. Has anyone ever tried the Stiggins pineapple rum from Plantation? It is the only thing that I buy constantly. It is my favorite thing in the world, and I love it. They sort of reverse engineered it from a fictional character. It, I love everything about it, and I just make people daiquiris from it and don't tell them what it is. It's my favorite. It's so good. Okay, Brendan, how are you feeling? You ready to go? I'm feeling great as long as the microphone's working. Microphone is working. Welcome, Brendan. I'll give you a quick introduction here. 
based in Seattle. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what you're studying for and where you're working right now. Yeah, awesome. So I'm working with Columbia Distributing up here in Seattle. I work with a lot of their wine and spirits right now. So you'll probably see a lot of that product in my presentation for sure, just for some, what is it, synergy reasons. So I'm working on that. Working towards CSS. I'm also working towards Cicerone. I should be taking Cicerone Level 2 early next year, I think in April. And then CSS probably after that. But, I mean, spirits and wine is kind of our heart lies. I'm already a level two sommelier working with these guys, mostly thanks to Nick. I just studied a lot with him for the wine stuff. It was pretty interesting. Elise, I was actually going to ask, we have a bit of a tiki revival out here in Seattle. And as I understand it, you're over in Colorado, right? Has any of that hit Colorado? You know, I'm actually in Reno, Nevada. So just to stop you, and we... Tiki is definitely going on here, too. We have a bar that opened within the last year called Rum Sugar Lime, and they serve rum cocktails, and they're packed on the weekends. So it's definitely a thing, I would say. It's happening. Awesome. Being being from Colorado, the Tiki Revival is happening here, too. There's a Tiki bar opening up soon. Everybody's making Tiki's. Everybody. That's super cool. Okay, so maybe it was you I was thinking it was from Colorado. Okay, yeah. No, I love that as a huge rum fan. That's great. I did post... Oh, sorry, Nick, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I just put a tiki cocktail on the menu at Bato, a zombie. So... <laughs> okay, yeah. You're going to have to come in and try that. Or... What's that? Did you do the numbered bottles for it? Or are you just having like your <laughs> bottles one, two, and three? Or... Yeah, well, we have one pre-batch bottle, and then we do the juice to order. But yeah, it's with... Actually, it's with Stiggins as the base rum with an agricole and an aged rum. So pretty fun. I'll have to see you there. Yeah, that sounds really good. Definitely up my alley for that. Though they did just open that McMinimins down here in Tacoma. So I've been pretty busy over there. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, their bars are great. I did share a file in the comments down there. If anybody has trouble accessing it, let me know. Otherwise, it should open up to my presentation, which is going to be on American whiskey. If you don't want to follow the slideshow, it's pretty easy. You can just follow along to my voice. Either or, it doesn't matter to me. All right. And 9.50 is a good time to start the clock. All right. American whiskey, Jack Daniels and friends. Obviously, it's not all Jack Daniels, but that's going to be one of our biggest importers. Bourbon still makes up about, or exports, bourbon still makes up about two-thirds of that market and i know that jack daniels technically is not bourbon it's technically tennessee whiskey and i'll get into that distinction a little bit later so if you click on the slide two you'll see styles i've broken up into kind of two main styles of american whiskey the grain specific whiskey and the grain non-specific whiskey right so the grain specific whiskeys are your rye your rye malt your malt your wheat bourbon tennessee whiskey itself and then corn whiskey, right? And then your grain non-specific or blended straight, light, and spirit. And generally when you see something that's grain specific, what that means is 51% of that mash bill has to be at least that stated grain. I am assuming some prior knowledge here, so please feel free to ask questions, preferably on microphone. Go ahead and interrupt me because I'm not gonna be checking comments uh, while I'm doing this. So it has to be 51% mash bill of that particular grain. Right, so rye whiskey has to be 51% rye, and then rye malt has to be 51% malted rye. So is everyone familiar with the malting process? Just real quick, what is it is it allows a grain to uh, germinate before distillation, and then that germination allows conversion of starts into sugars and the creation of enzymes. And those all help in the distilling process. And malt itself, the malting process gives off like sweet and nutty flavors like uh, coffee, toast, molasses, primarily. So again, malt whiskey is just 
classic malt. And you have wheat whiskeys, bourbon whiskeys. Now, bourbon has to be 51% corn whiskey. And then for all intents and purposes, just contender Tennessee whiskey, bourbon whiskey, except for two modifications, which we'll go over in a second. And then corn whiskey itself. And then your grain non-specific whiskey. Blended whiskey is just your whiskey that's blended of different grain styles, right? A straight whiskey. So it's, that's an unblended whiskey that's been aged for at least two years in barrel. If it's aged for more than four years, the age has to be stated on the bottle. Additionally, that straight whiskey generally has to go through the same process of being distilled at not more than a certain proof, which we'll go over the next slide. So if you move on to the next slide, it's all the rules and regulations surrounding these guys. So grain-specific whiskey, that's accepting corn whiskey, of course, because corn whiskey has its own rules and regulations. But for all the other grain-specific whiskeys, your rye, your bourbon, your Tennessee, your mash bill has to be at least 51% of the stated grain. Your distillation has to be to less than 160 proof, which is 80% alcohol. And you're bottling at over 80% proof. So that has to be at least 40%, right? These all have to be aged in charred new oak barrels. The funny thing about that is that there is no regulation on how long it has to be aged in a charred new oak barrel. You could literally just pass it through a charred new oak barrel and it will count as that grain-specific whiskey. Nobody would ever do that because you pick up all your flavors from the barrel, right? And then you put a white dog whiskey or like a you know an unaged whiskey, and that's generally not great for your company. It's marketable to nerds, but other than that, people don't really like it. Coloring and flavoring are prohibited in these grain-specific whiskeys. So the corn whiskey, which is grain-specific, has to be at least 80% corn on the mash bill, so it can't be just 51. Uh, it does not have to be aged, but if it is aged, it has to be aged in used oak barrels. They really want that corn flavor to come out in the whiskey. They consider it a historic American whiskey, right? And then it has to be aged at less than 125 proof, I think, on the corn whiskey. So grain non-specific whiskeys, accepting straight whiskey, because that has its own regulations I just went over. You're distilling to under 190 proof. You're bottling it over 80 proof again. Generic oak barrels for aging. You can use whatever you want, neutral oak. And then, interestingly enough, the law says it must possess the taste, aroma, and characteristics generally attributed to whiskey. <laughs> so you can't make something super weird and call it whiskey. There's also uh, bonded whiskey. So bonded whiskey is, it has to be aged for at least four years in a federally bonded warehouse, and it's bottled at no less than 100 proof, and it has to be the product of one distilling season. I don't know what a federally bonded warehouse is. Maybe it's a warehouse that has to be aged at least four years in a nationally bonded warehouse. Who knows? That's why I put Sam Eagle on this, because laws are not restrictive comparatively, but they still kind of, they don't make a lot of sense all the time. So now whiskey, like we were talking about with age statements with rums, so whiskeys with an age statement states the youngest whiskey inside that bottle. So when we get to like, not a lot of people are doing that nowadays, but the Van Winkle Distillery is still doing that, which is part of why they're so darn expensive. But we're really moving away from those age statements, which is great news. If you continue on the next slide, we have rye whiskey. So I'm going to hit the two big whiskeys here, rye whiskey and bourbon whiskey, right? Rye whiskey comparatively has a notably spicy, tangy, fruity flavor. And it's probably our most historic whiskey. So, I mean, bourbon wasn't really considered bourbon until, like, the later 1800s. But rye was the grain in the Northeast. So Michter's Rye Fridge was established 1753. And they were were the rye of the revolution. Basically, it was rye and sometimes beer that was keeping the revolution going. It wasn't wine, sorry, Nick. It was all rye and beer. So some very famous... Examples of rye whiskey, George Dickel Rye does a fantastic job. Whistle Pig, which I threw in as kind of a uh, toss in here. 
Lots either. But all their grain comes from Vermont. High West does some great rye whiskeys. High West is one of the Columbia's brands, if you didn't know, so feel free to buy as much of it as you want. Sazerac rye is another very historic rye, which we'll go over in a second. And then Rittenhouse rye just has a great flavor. I've worked at a number of cocktail bars, and I've managed a few cocktail bars in Seattle. And Rittenhouse really has been kind of the rye of choice for these cocktails, other than Sazerac and High West, of course, because I saw it. So Sazerac was America's first cocktail, right? 1838 in New Orleans. If anyone doesn't know what a Sazerac is, it's rye whiskey, cognac, Angostura, two different types of bitters, some sugar, and an absinthe rinse. It's really fantastic. It's America's first craft cocktail. It's really a cocktail history. Generally, things all started off here with what they called a sling. So whiskey wasn't always as great as it is nowadays. It was arguably much, much worse and sometimes could make you go blind, which I've had some whiskeys make me go kind of blind for a few seconds lately, but everything else is fine. So Sazerac. So the, the first whiskey, or the first cocktail, really, they think in America was the sling, which is just whiskey and sugar, right? Because you had these kind of crappy whiskeys, you had sugar to it. And then that's why the old-fashioned came about, because what somebody did was they'd say, give me something old-fashioned, right? So they'd take a sling, and then they'd add bitters to it, and there you go. That's your old-fashioned, right? So Sazerac, America's first craft cocktail. Obviously, New Orleans, where everything good comes from. If you move to the next slide, we're going to do bourbon whiskey, because I have about three minutes left, which is just enough time. So comparatively, bourbon whiskey has a noticeably sweet and caramel flavor. Again, it was developed in late 1800s. Nobody really knows who it was developed by, but it's generally attributed to Elijah Craig. He was the first one to kind of lay down charred oak barrels, which is kind of what gave bourbon whiskey its real, its real kick and theme. Uh, you can see on the little picture I put there, it's Bourbon County Barrel from Chicago, Illinois, and that's just kind of a funny little thing I put in there to show you how kind of crazy naming laws there are in the country uh, with that kind of stuff. So all the regulations I talked about for bourbon and rye and Tennessee whiskey and all that kind of fun stuff, they go right out the window when you export it. There are a few products, namely bourbon whiskey is the big one that when exported keeps its distinction as a historic and regional American product, right? But everything else, all of those regulations, you don't really need to follow them anymore once you export to different countries. The countries have their own regulations for what they're going to call their whiskey once it hits their shores, which is weird. We don't have that champagne deal, though we do have some nice California rums that do still call themselves champagne because they're jerks. So you could probably get the same deal over on bourbon and rye and stuff like that over uh, out east. So some notable bourbon whiskeys are Buffalo Trace, Maker's Mark, Jim Bean, Jack Daniels. Buffalo Trace is, it's not exactly an off-label, but it's, it's the same guys who are making Van Winkle. So it's fantastic bourbon. It hits a lot of like the top bourbon list for that very reason. It's, it has some great heritage. Now Jack Daniels is Tennessee whiskey. Now the distinction between Tennessee whiskey and bourbon is that Tennessee whiskey has to be made in Tennessee additionally and here's the really fun part it has to be passed through a column of charcoal that has been infused with maple syrup so if jack daniels tastes like maple syrup to you right that's 100 percent the reason why and it does it tastes sweet and mapley to me it's still a fine whiskey but young styles it so you don't have to buy it okay i'm gonna jump in here i'm not sure about the maple syrup part it's uh, sugar maple charcoal is the type of charcoal that's used for filtration 100% accurate. That's right. I just figured syrup maple. I was like, sugar maple, it's maple syrup. 
but no. Okay, so it's just so. What's the difference between sugar maple and maple syrup? Do you think? What do they use? So maple syrup is the sap of a maple tree. Sugar maple is you take wood and kind of toast it until it's or char it. It turns into charcoal, and it's just like your Brita filter at home, passing it through the new make spirit through that charcoal filtration just helps to remove any impurities. Okay. And then any of the kind of maple toffee tones are acquired through new oak aging. Oh, sweet. Okay. Nick, thank you. Yes, sir. Now I can stop telling that story about Jack Daniels. Now, Pappy, everybody knows about the angel share, so that's why Pappy gets a little expensive other than the fact that they're super hyped and they totally deserve it because they're great stuff. But they have the warehouses where they age this whiskey over in Kentucky, Tennessee. It gets very hot in these barns. So sometimes you'll open this barrel of Pappy that you haven't really touched in 24 years, and it's all gone when you open it up, right? So that's part of the risk of aging whiskey for a long, long time, right? Like I said, if you can get your hands on Pappy, great. That's all the Van Winkle series. They do the 10-year, the Lot B 12-year, uh, the 23-year, all sorts of fun stuff. If you can, it's really good stuff. Definitely suggest it. Bourbon whiskey, was it the very first American liquor? No, it was actually rum. Rum started out, they were bringing in sugar and molasses from the from the Caribbean, and they were making rum here before anything else, which is kind of funny for me as a uh, rum person. Next slide is the Pioneers of the Northwest. We have some great Northwest distilleries up here. Two Bar, Rogue, if Utah counts, we can throw High West in there again. And then Seattle has its own craft whiskey trail. If anyone wants to talk about Two Bar, Rogue, happy to talk about those guys too, because Rogue's doing their own whiskey now. And then the very last slide is American Whiskey Cocktails, which is, you know, all stuff that you normally see. The old-fashioned I talked about, Boulevardier, which is just a whiskey Negroni. The New York Sour has been definitely making the rounds here in Seattle. And then if you're a wine fan, it's a great way to go because the New York Sour is whiskey and wine together. And then the Sazerac and my personal favorite, the Vucre. That's all it, unless I have a bunch of time to talk about Two Bar and Rogue. <laughs> I think that'll be perfect for today. You did great. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much. Of course. Okay, now we need to go out for whiskey and rum cocktails. I used you say when. Okay, when. <laughs> okay, Jody, or or any other comments or questions for Brennan? No. Okay, wonderful. Jody, are you ready to go? I am. Okay. Okay, everybody. Good morning. I was charged with talking about European spirits but not France. And it seemed super easy. And then as I sort of dived into it, there's a lot of categories that you, you sort of have to leave behind. So what it comes down to is pretty much like what we're studying. You have categories of vodka, gin, whiskey, and brandy essentially for spirits in Europe. And I wrote down some that we talk about and some that we don't. We primarily know the production methods of most of these from our studies, but I have pages. So I am going to try to make this as concise as possible. All right, so in terms of European spirits, lots of history here because most of the things started there, clearly. I'm gonna start with gin, things that are based on gin. So obviously, Gin is a spirit that is primarily, it's herbaceous and it's usually based on juniper berries. And the predecessor to that is a Jennifer, which is a Dutch gin and very bright in flavor, typically 50% alcohol by volume. But then this moves around a lot because there is kind of a, a little war over where 
gin started. Most people think it's in Denmark and Norway and Sweden, but that is being contested. They're saying that it may have started in either Holland or Italy. Then we have a long history of gin being produced in London. And of course, gin was the most popular because it was flavored with botanicals that were hiding sort of the substandard distillation process where you have all of those awful flavors in there from non-great distillation or very few distillations. So you would flavor it with herbs and juniper and try to sort of drown that flavor. So Spain has a long history of it as well. So what I wanted to do was talk about a few gins. I'll keep it to like three maybe that are not your normal go-tos that have something interesting about them and that are from Europe that are not your usual suspects. Okay. So uh, the first one I want to start with is a, a gin called Gin Mare. It's from Spain and it is a Mediterranean style gin. They want to focus on the fact that they think that gin started in Spain and possibly Italy. They're staying away from the Holland part of it and of course the London part. So they've got basil from Italy, thyme from Greece, rosemary from Turkey, and citrus from Spain. So it's a pan-Mediterranean gin, super delicious, uh, apparently. 42.7% ABV. And then from Italy, who love, love, loves their gin and tonics, so does Spain, where they call it gin tonic. And it's kind of like saying hello to everybody in Spain. They're like, we have to go get gin tonic. And that's big fans over there. So in Italy, a gin that sort of exemplifies an Italian way of flavoring it beyond your traditional juniper is with lemons. So there's one called Malfi, and it's obviously from the Amalfi Coast and the lemons that grow there. But what's important about this gin is it's produced, everything sourced from Italy, and it's produced by the Verignano family, and they've been making gin there for over 100 years. So that's pretty interesting. There is one from Germany. Don't normally think of Germany as a place that produces gin, but they're doing a London dry, which is important for people that are studying because you usually just have one or two, but maybe you can throw in an outlier if you're willing to take the barrage of questions that comes with recommending a London dry gin produced in Germany. 45% ABV and it is flavored with a little bit of black currant as well. And then you have your usual suspects. You can't leave the Netherlands out, even though I'd like to for this, because I'm looking for sort of outliers. So the Netherlands, they have all kinds of gin. One is flavored with celery. And then one that I found that was super interesting is from Belgium, and it's called Filiers, F-I-L-L-I-E-R-S. And it's a gin that is flavored with, on top of your standard juniper, 28 different botanicals, including Belgian hops, which I thought was really interesting, allspice and orange. And it's done in a traditional copper still. It's done in small batches. And primarily the flavors here of cardamom and coriander. And then there's Kiro from Finland as well. So and moving on from gin, we have... Do, 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 do. This was a little, there, There, of course, is a, your whiskey category, which would be an entire topic that we can talk about. You can see, Brandon, for details from earlier, but <laughs> in terms of European, we've got Scotch whiskey, we have Irish whiskey, we've got 
I didn't know how much you wanted me to talk about it because I feel like we study that almost more than anything else. So a little nod to the category, but I'm going to keep moving so that I can get through what I actually researched more in depth. I can talk about it. I have the notes up, but let me do the other things first. Yeah, I'd say about three or four minutes left here. Okay, great. So then let's go to vodka real fast. In terms of vodka, of course, you know, this is the earliest spirit. You know, it's widely debated, but vodka in Europe has a long history as well. I wanted to start with Poland with that. There's Poland and there's Russia, but you said Europe, so we're going to stick with Poland. Belvedere is one that we're all familiar with, but what I wanted to talk about that specifically because it has a couple of interesting things that you might not know. So Belvedere is made from rye and it is made from well water that is from Poland and it's 40% ABV. It's named after Bel Belvedere, Bellwether, which is the Polish presidential palace in Warsaw. And that is what is on the front of the bottle. It's also certified kosher, which I thought was an interesting thing to note. There's also Zubroka, which is from Poland, and it's a bison grass vodka. Russian vodka, obviously. And the thing with vodka is, you know, you, it's contingent, of course, upon your production method. And like anything else, it's distilled. And what makes the vodkas different is how many times you're distilling it and whether your master distiller, of course, is getting rid of the heads, the tails and things in vodka called four shots. Or if you're not trying to do that, you can use a fractioning still, of course. And then in terms of things that are, we don't know, if is it vodka, is it gin, are things like aquavit from Scandinavia. And what I didn't realize about the aquavit category is that you know usually flavored with caraway. But in Norway, they use potatoes and the production method is always, almost always six months in oak. And that's for Norway, but Sweden and Denmark do not do that. It's typically unaged and it's based on cereal grains and not potato. That was interesting. There is also something that's similar to vodka as well, because, you know, vodka is made from a million things, mostly just different carbohydrates, potatoes, grain. There's one in Romania called Tuica, T-U-I-C-A, and it's made from the cereal grain Rachui, R-A-C-H-I-U. And it has a long history in Romania, and it goes between 20 to 60% ABV, which is pretty terrifying, actually. And then the last category, vodka gin whiskey, is brandy. And I didn't know whether that should be included under what we're talking about today, and I decided it was because it's not a liqueur, because it's not distilled from spirit, so primarily from fruit. And there's an extra long history of this. The Czech Republic has Borovica, uh, originally from Slovakia. And it, it's kind of between a gin and a brandy because it's produced from black juniper berries. But they do put some fruit in there sometimes, distill it with it. It's distilled numerous times, which is the secret, depending on how many times you distill, how smooth it is, obviously. But the spirit rests for a minimum of six months. They want that to blend thoroughly and it doesn't have uh, any oak aging, so it's clear. It's herbal tart, and it has a 45% ABV. The one that I read about the most was from Rudolf Jelinek, and that is called Borovica. And then we've got Palinka from Hungary, which is definitely a fruit brandy. It's made from apricots, only from the Kekasim region of Hungary. It's distilled twice, and it has a very honeyed, they say it has a honeyed apricot, very creamy. I was not a fan when I was in Hungary. 
It was very, you got it on the finish, obviously, but it was pretty aggressive, I thought. And Zvok House is one of the major producers, 43% ABV. And then you've got Slivovica, which is Damson Plum. It's from Slovakia. And that's another fruit brandy as well. And then, of course, there's a, a whole category of things that you want to talk about for European spirits, but we don't really fit in this category, like schnapps, amaro, rocky is from Turkey. I wanted to talk about that a little, but that's sort of an overview of the, the different European spirits that are non-French. And since everybody else sort of went over production techniques and times, I figured I would just talk about the a little more of the outliers. And then what I can do is send to the group some of the things that I looked at and hold on, I'm trying to get you guys back up here and then give you some things to study. Does anybody have any questions? Oh, yay. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Who was the producer of the German gin? The German gin is, it's called Elephant Gin, is from Germany, Elephant London Dry Gin. That's what it's called, distilled in Germany. Elephant London Dry Gin, let me see if I can put a picture of it for you. And then while you're doing that, you should check out Monkey 47 as well. Yes, um, and I wanted to talk about that. We sell that. I don't understand. That's Monkey. This one's Elephant. Apparently, they give, it goes to some proceeds of a, an, an elephant rest home. Okay. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I will put that on here, too. <laughs> uh. Questions? Love Monkey 47. Yeah, I was actually going to ask a little bit about Aquavie. I know Aquavie has a pretty unique flavor that a lot of people find very astringent. How would you go about selling Aquavie to someone, or would, how would you go about maybe adding it in a cocktail? Like, what would be your pairing recommendations, I guess? Okay, wait, hold on. I, well, I, like, I like this a lot. Okay, so Aquavie is primarily flavored with caraway, so you've got sort of the burn of alcohol, but you also have something that's very savory. So I feel like Aquavie, I know that traditionally it's a digestif, but also it can be used for somebody that doesn't want a sweeter cocktail that's looking for a more savory item. And I mean, I feel like you can tell that from people right away when they're like, I don't want anything too sweet. And you can say, well, great, we, we can make you a, kind of a savory cocktail. I think you could do Aquavit. You've got caraway in there. And since it's almost like gin in the sense that it's flavored with something that's not necessarily sweet, like juniper, it's herbaceous. I feel like you could make a cocktail with Aquavit. I feel like you can add a little bit of gin to that, depending on what tonic waters you have. We make a lot of different things from herbs here. And I think even if you just shook it with herbs and bruised it with whatever you have on site in California, it would be dynamite. You could do a rinse of something. I think it would depend. I like cocktails a lot because I feel like it's cooking. And so you figure out what somebody wants and then you sort of layer it on and create it. I feel like that would be a really easy cocktail to sell. And I actually have never thought about it. And thank you because I'm putting that right in my toolbox. I don't know if that answered you, but you know, I, depending like right now, we have a lot of rosemary in California. It grows like shrubs. So caraway, rosemary, juniper. I think you can, there's a million things that could be done with that. Yeah, that, that answered great. Thank you. That was super. Yeah. Cause I'm on the same page. I, cocktails and cooking are one of the same. So that's, yeah. 
Bloody Marys are good with Aquavit too. Oh, yeah, sexy. Ooh, hey. Pickle juice. <laughs> well, um, let's see here. Jody, thank you so much. That was delightful and exactly what I was hoping for and more. So much more. So, Jenica, we will wrap things up for today with you and whenever you're ready. Awesome. I'm going to keep the video off. I kind of like this. We got a lot of things going on right now. So one thing, I feel like I could have done a lot more research. Nick and I had a little email tag situation, but my topic was specifically the aging requirements for Armagnac and Cognac. But I'm going to go a little deeper rather than just listing off years and what BS and BSOP mean. Just kind of getting to the basics of where we're at in France, grapes and such and distillation processes, just to kind of give us a quick overview of all of that. So Armagnac and Cognac, both coming from kind of on the western side of France. Cognac is located a little bit closer to the coast and north of Bordeaux, while uh, Armagnac is a little bit more inland and then south of Bordeaux to kind of give you where we're at. We're talking about 300 or so kilometers distance between the two regions. It's important to know these that they are regions and they do have AOCs, and there are a ton of regulations as to aging requirements, like little sub-AOCs and such. The grape we most think of, Uni Blanc, also known as Trebbiano in Italy. But Cognac um, definitely relies a little heavier on Uni Blanc, typically sitting around 97%, while Armagnac sits around that 55% range. And other varieties, kind of depending on where you're at, I mean, you use a Paco Blanc, Colombard, let's see, uh, I'm trying to think, Mazac, Mazac Rosé, Foy Blanche. Lots of other little random varietals that we don't really see ever. The reason these varieties are often chosen is because they don't have a lot of aromatic intensity. When you're talking distilled distillation, you want the process of distillation and aging to be the star of the show rather than aromatics from the grape, in a sense. Oh, look at that. Only hybrid grape allowed. There you go. Thanks. Thanks for that little nugget. As far as distillation, there are two types of distillation that you see in these regions. Armagnac can use either of them. So there's the pot still or the column still, thinking of continuous distillation. And then there's the Charente pot still, which is a double fermentation method. Like I said, Armagnac can use both of those. Cognac can only use the Charente pot, the double distillation. And as far as kind of regulations for the Charente method for both regions are the same maximum 140 liter capacity for the first still and the copper still has to be done over an open flame and then for the second distillation it's I think 30 hectoliter of capacity for both of those continuous still for Armagnac two to three boilers cannot exceed 40 hectoliters of capacity so those are just like little distillation facts let's see as far as aging, there's a lot of different things. You see a lot of, when you look at the Giltsom site, it's like BS slash three stars slash, and then all the stuff, and like there's Napoleon, and there's all these different ways to label. I think it's gotten a little out of hand of all the different options that you can use. But to give you some little background, so BS means very special. It's kind of the introductory level. And you can also see if you see three stars, that means vs as well if they don't want to put the vs on there vsop there's two we most often think of it as a very special old pale again originally it was very superior old pale 
it came around in 1817 with the British Royal Court so that cognac pale had to be a part of the labeling requirements, kind of indicating that there was it wasn't sweetened in any sort of capacity. XO means extra old. You can also look at Napoleon is kind of that slash thing. It's BSOP Napoleon slash XO. It's a little confusing, but Napoleon is often used as kind of like a marketing tool to say somewhere between BSOP and XO, but minimum is four years for that, for Armagnac. And then let's just go over some aging requirements here. So for Armagnac, they require minimum, if without any sort of special labeling, they require a minimum of one year and 400 to 420 liter oak barrels, often coming from, it's black oak from the Monuzon forest. And so for their aging requirements for the BS, they're talking around one to three years. BSOP slash Napoleon uh, is minimum of four years. Then XO or extra old is a minimum of 10 years. And then Ordiage is a minimum of 10 years as well. The difference between those I do need to do a little bit more research on. And then XO premium is a minimum of 20 years. And then vintage minimum of 10 years. And that indicates that it's the year of harvest, not the year of distillation. Distillation has to occur before March 31st, the year following harvest, if that makes sense. There's also Blanche um, Armagnac, which there's not a lot of information, except that it has to be three months in an inert container and has to be colorless. So I'm not sure. I need to look at different producers of Blanche Armagnac to find out if they're using glass, if they're using stainless, if they're using uncharred oak. I'm not really sure what they're doing there. As far as cognac, BS is a minimum of two years. Superior is minimum of three years. VO or VSOP or reserve is a minimum of four years. VVSOP or ground reserve is a minimum of five years. And then you have, this is where it gets a little out of control. So XO, Napoleon, Extra, Royale, Trade View, Via Reserve are all minimum of six years. Um, and as of 2018, the XO will be a minimum of 10 years. And then there's the XXO as a minimum of 14 years. So a lot of micro regulations and requirements for aging. I'm trying to figure out, I honestly don't drink a lot of Armagnac and Cognac. I need to make that change in my life. But I feel like... There's got to be some sort of different, like three, four, five, six years. It's curious to me why the difference. Um, I feel like it might be more of a little bit more of a marketing tool. But yeah, so that's that's what I have. Cognac didn't mention size. It just said oak cast for barrels. But the from the limousine and the Troncai forest. So pretty standard use of French oak there. And that's all I have. Thank you very much. Yeah, that XXO seems a little ridiculous like they need a different name <laughs> yeah it's, yeah there's a lot of a lot of things happening there like they should call it like eminent oh wait right. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you jenica yeah i don't think americans really drink a lot of brandies in general even if it's cognac or armagnac but you know slovovitz or barack palinka kirsch it's the least ordered category at any bar that I've worked at, so. We still 
a lot of brandy at our restaurant, but it's Spanish brandy, so we do a 100% Spanish wine list. We sell a ton of gin and tonics. Um, and we sell a lot of the El Maestro um, brandies, which is pretty outstanding to be able to get people into like a Solera-based brandy, which is Awesome. Oh, is that like a Jerez style? Yeah, so they, yeah, El Maestro makes two brandies. One is the Gran Reserva, which is, I think, a minimum of 70 years, uh, Solera. And then they have their Reserva, which is a minimum of 40 years. Whoa, cool. Yeah, I've had Lustau's Jerez brandy as well, which is, did you say four or 40? 40. Whoa, crazy. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate all of your presentations and your hard work in putting that together. And I think this group continues to be an asset to me and um, is something I'm really proud of. So thank you. Thank you. It helps to have an auditory as opposed to just staring at books all day, which makes me blind. (laughs) So many flashcards. Yes. Cool. For next week, I was considering, unless we have any special requests for a topic, jumping back to wine and going into Spain. And there's been a lot of new developments with uh, Rioja, but also in Catalonia and Castilla y Leon. So I thought we could cover kind of the northern Spain Appalachians and kind of really get a good handle on what's going on there. Agree. Love it. Nice. Well, uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. And... Go drink some Blanche Armagnac. Absolutely. Cool. See ya. Bye. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Bye.